We are in this series on the book of Revelation, and I think we have, um, gosh, it's almost Easter season. So in a couple more weeks, we're going to do what I call our Easter giving series. So we take up an offering during our Easter Sunday that goes towards our, the Vietnam missions we support, the Brazil and Haiti. And so we'll be talking about that. So we'll take a break from this series, and then we'll jump back to it. So we got some time where we'll be, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be in this for a while, but we're going to take a little breaks. So we're in these letters or these messages that Jesus has John write down to deliver. Now, in chapter 1 of Revelation, we see that Jesus, John is in prison on the island of Patmos. Jesus comes to visit him. And John says, I've written down all the things that I've seen and heard. And we get this description of Jesus, of what he looks like in chapter 1. And so these letters, they were written to the churches for the current time. There's churches that these letters were written to. But we must understand that these letters also pertain to um, uh, conditions that churches and even people will find themselves in. So, so I'm a pastor. If I'm reading the book of Revelation and I'm reading these letters, these messages, and, and these, one of these things starts jumping out at the page at, on, at me, and, and, and I'm just like, this is our church. Like our church is going down the same road that this church is going down. Then that is God's Holy Spirit saying, Chip, I need you to take heed. I need you to listen to this. I need you to correct some things, to get some things turned around. This is the direction your church is heading. Or maybe as an individual, we're like, whoa, this is, this is some things that, that I've kind of fallen into, some habits or some whatevers. And that's God's Holy Spirit saying, listen, this, what this church was doing is what you're doing. And so please, heed the warning. Listen to the corrections. Take heed and get things turned around so that we can get back on track. Amen? So here's the thing. We can never say, well... You know, that was written for the church at that time, or that was written for the person or the people of that time, because God's word transcends time. And so it's meant for at that time and beyond. And also the reason that it's, it's very important that we look at and we pay attention uh, to these letters is because they are inspections that Jesus was giving the church. Remember, in uh, uh, chapter 1, he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and the, and the seven golden lampstands I walk amongst. The lampstands were the churches, the stars were the pastors. So Jesus holds the pastors in his right hand, and he walks amongst the churches, and he inspects. He does inspections, and he does that to this very day. So, so we have to pay attention to this stuff, because here's the thing, as Christians, as a body of believers, as a church, we represent Jesus. We represent Jesus to the world out there. We represent Jesus to people who don't know him. We are to reflect his image to those around us, to our family members who are non-believers, to our co-workers, to uh, uh, our neighbors, to people we see out and about at the stores. We reflect the image of Jesus as a follower of his. That's why it's important that we read these and we understand these. Because remember, if you remember in the first letter to Ephesus, Jesus told them, listen, if you don't get this turned around, 
I will remove your influence for me in the world. How would you like Jesus to say that? Listen, if you don't get this turned around, I'm going to remove, you will no longer be my influence. I will find somebody else. And so today's letter is addressed to the church in Pergamum, or in King James, it would be Pergamos. Um, and the description Jesus uses of himself in each letter, he starts out with a description that pertains to what he wants to address. And it is a description that we see of him in chapter 1. He, he, he uses a part of his description of his, his character that he, that he uses to address the church. And in this message, he says, the one with the two-edged sword. Now, Pergamum was about 70 miles north of Smyrna. Last week, we looked at the letter delivered to Smyrna. Smyrna was about 30 miles north of Ephesus, the first letter. So these churches are in the Asia Minor province of the Middle East, and, and they kind of, there was this well-traveled road where it was kind of this arc where um, these churches were all established. And so we went from Ephesus to Smyrna, and now Pergamum. Pergamum. And, and Pergamum is 70 miles north of Smyrna, which is in the current area of the country of Turkey right now. And Pergamum was the capital of the Asia Minor area. It was also just a few miles from the ancient city of Troy. Now, here's a few other things that we need to know about the city. It had a thriving university. It had a library that held about 200,000 volumes. So we use the word volumes because they were probably scrolls or pieces of paper. You know, I don't think they had books just yet. Um, it was known for its education, and it was the medical center of the region. And it was also the leader of the production of paper in vellum and parchment paper. So they must have done a lot of writing. They, 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 they made the paper here, produced it, sent it out. For people to write down on their scrolls and whatnot. Now, like Ephesus, Pergamum was a major city for idol worship. So we're going to get into some, some um, PG-13 conversation today, just so you know. Well, we, won't, we won't dwell much past that, but we're going to, this is some serious stuff we're going to look at that was going on here. Now, here's the thing. There was five known cults that kind of were the main things, themes of the city. Four of them were gods, temples to these gods. One of these gods, we all know, the infamous Zeus. Zeus was, was worshipped in, in, in Pergamum, and he had an altar to him that was 40 feet tall. Now another god in there, I'm, I'm going to probably mess this up, but the name was Oscalipus. Has anybody ever heard of that? Oscalipus? Has anybody ever seen the um, medical symbol with the serpent? Well, that's Oscalipus. Oscalipus was the god of medicine that dwelt in the city of Pergamum, and there was an altar for this god, and all kinds of people came to Pergamum to receive healing from this god. And then there were two other major ones that we don't really need to get into, but, but there's, there's just kind of sets the tone for what was happening in this city. Now, in the Bible, Pergamum, the church in Pergamum is known as the compromising church. They were once on fire for Jesus. They were one of the most committed churches to Jesus. And then they became one of the most corrupt. So let's, let's get right into it here. 
And we're going to look. We're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 2. Some of these things, for the sake of time, I'm going to read really fast, but some of them I won't. So uh, Revelation chapter 2, we'll start off in verse 12. So here's the beginning of this letter. Write this letter to the angel, that's the pastor, of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. This is the description that Jesus uses himself in, in a way that he wants to address this church. Now, the two-edged sword. Can you give a little definition to that, Chip? Yes, I can. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. So what do we think that two-edged sword represents? The word of God. It is sharper than sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. So this word, is a, is, it reflects who we are to ourselves. When we read God's word, it exposes our innermost being to ourselves. And it is up to us to respond. Maybe it's a good thing that you're like, hey, I, I'm on track. I'm, 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 my faith is good. I'm doing good. I'm, I, I, I think I'm following God's word the way I'm supposed to. Or I'm, I need to clean some areas up. See, here's the thing. We cannot ever hide from God. We cannot fool him. We can fool the people around us. We can fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. What is the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned, when they, when they ate the fruit from the tree they were not supposed to eat from? They hid from God. He was walking amongst the garden. He said, where are you guys? And then he finally finds them, and he says, you know, what, what, what's going on? Well, we hid from you. We were afraid. Never, ever, ever hide from God. Because here's the thing. When you read something and you're like, oh, no, this is me. Or, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. I, I, God's going to be mad at me. He's going to be upset with me. No, he wants to help you get things figured out. We can't fool God. So this, this is, it cuts between everything, all right? Now, when the prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah, when he spoke of Jesus, he wrote this. And he was speaking in the third-person form of Jesus, speaking of his father. And he said this in Isaiah 49. This is Jesus. And he says, He, God, made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. So the word of God, Jesus' words, are as sharp as a sword. It's going to cut through anything. It'll bring judgment that will slice anything down. But it's a good judgment if, if we respond accordingly. Now, listen to this. Isaiah when speaking of Jesus, uh, prophesying of the coming Messiah, in chapter 11, said this. Jesus, he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. Let's just stop there for a minute. What does that mean? That is the cry of God's heart, social justice. When we treat a person different because we think they're, differently, they're different from us, that breaks God's heart. God sees all people as equal, no matter the color of our skin, no matter where we come from, no matter the immigrant, no matter the traveler, no matter who it is, God treats all people equal, and we are to do the same. This first sentence in this verse is the cry of God's heart. When you read the Old Testament prophets, that was the theme. 
treat people with respect. Because here's the deal. Jesus will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions to the exploited, to the downtrodden, to the oppressed, to the hurting. And then the earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. That is a sharp two-edged sword. That's the word of God. That's Jesus. Now, with the, the, in my studies in this, it is called with the cult of emperor worship. This was a cult. The Romans, the Romans ruled the land at the time. And they believed their emperors were gods. gods. Caesar was a god. You had, you had to give your allegiance to Caesar and bow down to him and worship him. All the emperors were gods. So we have this, this kind of cult activity going on. And then we have these four major Greek temples to these gods. And Jesus is saying, it is I with the two-edged sword. It is I with, with the voice that will shake the earth. It is I that am bringing judgment to what is going on right now. I'm the one that is speaking. I'm the one that holds the attention. That's what he's saying. So let's just read a little further. Next verse. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Does that sound like a vacationing spot to you? Where are you guys going for vacation? We're heading to Pergamum. Satan's city. It's a pretty wicked city. And if you notice, I do not capitalize Satan. I, I do that on purpose. This is a wicked, wicked city. In the King James, it says, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, Jesus always starts out by addressing the good. I know your works. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know, I know how faithful and loyal you have been to me. He always will address the things that bring him honor in our lives before he brings the message of correction because he wants to know. It's kind of a way of building somebody up. It's a way of lovingly saying, here's what we need to work on. You've been here before, and we can get you back on track. We, Jesus, me, and you can get back to where you need to be. Because remember, church, nothing in all creation is hidden from Jesus. Nothing. And so the church of Pergamum was in the very city where Satan has set up his throne. This wasn't something that Jesus was thinking was going on. This is Jesus who knows what's happening in the spirit realm, right? He knows that Satan sits on his throne in this city. Even when my faithful witness Antipas was killed, martyred, Jesus is commending the church for refusing to deny him. Even when my faithful witness, your good friend from your church, Antipas, was martyred, you refused to deny me. Now, I am willing, I am inclined to think that what he means by that is that the Romans were probably trying to get the Christians 
to deny their allegiance to Jesus first and place their allegiance in the emperor. Because that's what they were doing in Smyrna. We looked at that last week. And so that's, I'm inclined to believe that that was where the denying of Jesus would come in at. Now, let's see what Jesus gives as a, as a, as a, as a, a what he wants to address. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. Who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. warning I think <laughs> remember in, in, in chapter 1 that, that sword comes from his mouth it's his word Isaiah says the earth will shake at the force of his word with one breath from his mouth he will destroy them. now the story of Balaam and Balak can be found in the book of Numbers chapters 22 through 25 if you want some really interesting reading this week read it I'll give you the synopsis of what it is. Balak was the king of Moab. He was a Moabite king. They were enemies of the Israelites. And Balak wants to come against Israel. And so he hires this guy named Balaam. He was, a, he was a, like a sorcerer. He says, I want you to curse the Israelites. He says, okay, I'll do it. Thanks for the money. Now he's riding on his donkey, traveling to wherever, maybe to go curse him, whatever. But the donkey stops and begins speaking to Balaam that this isn't a good idea what you're about to do. God used the, Balaam's donkey to speak to him about what he was doing. It's a, it's a fascinating story. So Balaam says, you know what? Maybe you're right, God. Donkey, never. So he proceeds to bless the Israelites. Well, Balak, he, he gets furious over this. He's like, I've asked you to curse them, and you're blessing them. So instead, Balaam tells Balak, listen, here's what you need to do. If you get the Israelites to intermarry with the pagan nations around them, it will cause them to start worshiping the gods that they worship and to do the things that they're doing. I'm not going to curse them like you want me to. But here's how you can get through to them. And that's what he did. Now, now listen to this. In the book of Numbers, chapter 25, verse 1, listen to this. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Pretty serious stuff, what's happening here. Just... There's nothing to stop here. Oops. Check if the device... <laughs> I saw that serious thing coming up, and I was like, oh, we can't stop it. Just to give you a little context of who Baal is, Okay? Baal 
is the most wicked of all demons out there. All right? So Baal worship was like this. People offered their children as sacrifices in the fire to Baal, particularly their babies, in the fire to Baal. And while this was happening, all kinds of despicable sexual acts were taking place, and they would hoot and holler and yell and drum circles and cut themselves, and just wickedness was taking place when they would worship at the altar of Baal. And then they would feast on the food that they dedicated to Baal. This was a wicked, 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 wicked practice that the Israelites got themselves caught up in. They were sacrificing their children to this God. And this is what crept into the church in Pergamum. This is why the two-edged sword is what's bringing some judgment here to the church. Now, the apostle Paul warns of this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. And he says this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteous, righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So this is, this is more than just being friends with a non-believer. Like, like we, we, we need to be friends with non-believers, right? Our core group of friends should be believers, they're the ones that are going to challenge us. They're the ones that keep us on the right track. They're the ones that are going to pray for us. They're the ones that are going to understand us when it comes to our theology and whatnot and our way of living. We need to have core believers. We need to have believers as our core group of friends. But we've got to have non-believing friends. That's fine. How is a world going to know who Jesus is if we're not? You know, here's the deal. Jesus hung out with sinners, right? But he didn't become one. He didn't act like them. He didn't compromise his morals. He didn't start doing things that they were doing so he could be buddies with them. You know, here's the thing. We often think we need to act like people. We need to compromise our Christian morals so that we can remain friends with people. But do you know something? When you stand, when you hold fast to your Christian morals, I believe your friends that don't hold to those morals will look up to you more. Because people often look up to people who stand true for where they're at. And you don't know how much the Holy Spirit is using your stance on something to speak to somebody who's doing something that you know you ought not be doing, but you're still in the company of them. Does that make sense? I'm a firm believer in that. But here's the other thing. We do know that oftentimes a spouse will get saved and start coming to church. This, this passage doesn't pertain to that. When there's a spouse that gets saved after you got married, and believe me, you, God wants your spouse in here too, your husband or your wife, and he's going to get the family in here. He wants the entire family to get saved, and, he, and, and it usually starts with one. But when a Christian has a binding relationship with a non-Christian or an intimate relationship with a non-Christian, it's not a good idea. 
because our morals begin to become compromised. And yeah, there are some who have, you know, beat the odds. I understand that. But according to biblical history and the word of God, it's never gone well. So there's that. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Now the Nicolaitans, also mentioned in the first letter in Ephesus, they were, they were in that church as well. They also engaged in sexual immorality and pagan feasts. But they brought some other doctrines into the church, which was this. They abused the message of grace. And they encouraged uh, uh, a doctrine that the body is evil and the spirit is holy. This, is, this comes from Gnosticism, which is a Greek philosophy, a spiritual Greek philosophy. And part of that is this. We can do whatever we want to our bodies because when we get to heaven, our body doesn't go with us, just our spirit. Well, we will be resurrected in new bodies. Our body here on this earth is the temple of God's. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in a couple of letters to the church in Galatia. He says this. Here's the deal. They taught that people were free to treat their bodies however they wanted. You can do this stuff. It's fine. Well, in Galatians chapter 5, it says this. For you have been called to live in freedom, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. See, how many people do you know, don't raise your hands, but are, are non-believers who believe that in this book is a list of do's and don'ts that restricts you from living life the way you want to live it? But in actuality, it is a book that gives us freedom because we live, we are, not, we are no longer bound to our sinful nature. We're free to live who we are in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this to that church, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. God bought us with, at a high price, the cost of his son nailed to that cross. My life is no longer mine to live. My life is Jesus's to live through me. And I want to do that to the best of my ability. Am I going to mess up? Absolutely I am. We all are. But what, the, the moment you, you give your life to Jesus, the moment you invite him into your life, Jesus says, I've been waiting for this. And now you and I are going to go through life together. And I'm going to work out the plans that I have to work out through you because I've been waiting for this. And you are going to be a reflection of me to the world. But church... Freedom in Christ does not mean that we get to do whatever we want. There are things that we should not be doing that, or if we do do, will we'll ruin our reputation. I know I said it. Just get it out. <laughs> we get caught up in compromising our faith, the things that God wants us, the standards that he has for us, and we ruin our reputation for him. And then, what does he say in the ending in verse 16? Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
this is not the letter that I would want to be addressed to me by Jesus. Hey, listen, bud, if you guys don't get this figured out, I'm going to come at you with the sword of my mouth. The entire church in Pergamum must repent. But here's the deal. The letter is addressed to the pastor. So who needs to lead this charge of repentance? The pastor, the leaders of the church. If they do not get this turned around, they will face a judgment for the path that they are willing to let people go down. You know what the hard, one of the hardest things as, as a pastor is is, is, is to allow people to continue in their sin. I don't want to hurt their feelings. They're going to be mad at me if I address this. If they're not asking, I'm not addressing it. But you're watching them go down this road. So, so how do you navigate through that? People need to be held accountable. Otherwise, we'll destroy ourselves. That's what was happening with this church here. Then, now, um, them, I, w- I, will, I, will come, I, I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That means those who are allowing the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to creep into the church. Those who are leading this and saying this is okay, I'm coming at them. And I picture it like this, I will slice them down with my sword. That's kind of how I see it. So, Let's read the ending of this letter. There's got to be something good in here. There is. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name, that no one understands except the one who receives it. So there it is. There's a blessing in all of this. Now, actually, this just, this just uh, caught my, my attention uh, late last night. Did you hear that? It said the church is. The blessing in, chapter, in verse 17 here is for all of us. The blessing is for everyone who overcomes, for everyone who is victorious over their struggles with their sinful desires. Hidden manna. What is manna? Manna was the food that God supernaturally supplied for the Israelites when they wandered through the desert for 40 years. The Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians for over 400 years. God said, Moses, you're going to be my guy. You're going to lead my people out from under the rule of Egypt which he did, and then they got all messed up and they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, but not a strap of their sandals broke, not a stitch of their clothing clothing loosened, and they were fed supernaturally by this manna. Every morning when the Israelites would wake up, it was like dew on the ground, and they had to collect it, and everybody had just enough, and then when the sun came up, it was all gone, and it was this bread that they survived on. For 40 years. Now, listen to this about manna. There's a psalm, Psalm 78, and this entire psalm is a poem, a song, written about the history of the Israelites. And it says this, He commanded the skies to open. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. They ate the food of angels. 
That's this manna that we'll get to have a taste of if we overcome. Jesus, in John chapter 6, referred to himself as the true bread that came down from heaven. Jesus refers to himself as this manna, the bread of life. So I'm inclined to believe that there is some eternal meaning to this hidden manna, right? But I'm not quite too sure what it exactly means. I scoured the commentaries this week, and basically, I'm going to tell you what I came up with in all the commentaries. It was kind of the same thing in all of them, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> right? Here it is. For now, this side of heaven, okay? This is the true spiritual food that nourishes the soul. Nourishes our spirits. Right? We were created in the image of God. He is a three-part being, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. Our soul is our mind, our intellect. Spirit, mind, body. This manna nourishes us spiritually. It keeps us going. It is provided by Jesus himself to those who have gained victory over their sinful desires, and I think particularly the desires addressed to the church in Pergamum. In effect, there is food stored away in heaven, hidden in heaven, provided by Jesus that keeps us strong spiritually while we are traveling through the wilderness of this world that we live in, that we are nourished by. It's Jesus, the bread of life, the bread from heaven. When you get caught up in worship, when you sense the presence of God, when you, when you just feel so good, I don't think that day could get bad because I just sense the presence of God within me. You are feasting on manna. I promise you that. Get, that. get that in your head. Now, there are many different thoughts of what the meaning of this stone means. Just, just Google Revelation 2.17 commentaries, and you can read it all. There's many different thoughts of what the stone meant. One of them was this. In the ancient world, in a courtroom, if you were on trial, they would reveal a white stone if you were innocent and a black stone if you were guilty. So this is a white stone that we get. But here's what, and there was also many other spiritual uh, uh, um, um, uses for stones. But here's what we're dialing in on. This is it. In the context of this verse, I am of the thought that there is a connection between the manna and the stone. And they point to the believer's eternal victory. The stone would be significant because it is something that we will receive that has a name on it that only the person receiving the stone knows the meaning of that name. I'm pretty sure it has to do with our character. That would be my guess. It's not going to be something like Honey Bunch. Unless, you know. God, God himself will give each one of us a white stone that we, that we can have. We'll look at it and it will be a name. And you know what? Listen, here's how I picture it. It will be a name that you look at and you just break down. 
because it's only something that God knows about you and your character that will have a special relationship between you and the creator of everything that we see, the creator of it all. Does that give you a little drive to maybe say, hey, I want to do my best while I'm here on this earth? And this stone that we receive is the evidence a person has been accepted by God and declared worthy of eternal life in paradise with him. Could you imagine getting that? I don't know who hands it to you. I don't know if it just pops up. Because there's going to be a lot of us, right? I don't know how all that works. But you get a stone that has a special name on it that only you and God know about. Now, Chip, I want a little something to kind of back that up with. Okay, I'll give it to you. Isaiah, when prophesying about the coming blessing for all nations... Right? Did you know in the book of Isaiah, the entire Bible is wrapped up in Isaiah from beginning to end? There's a lot that Isaiah prophesied about. Listen to this, chapter 56. I will give them within the walls of my house, says God, a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I believe there's a correlation between the name on this stone and what is being said right here. As we enter into heaven, we'll receive this stone that has a special name on it. And who knows? Maybe a slice of manna. I don't know. But for me, this gives me something to look forward to. Right? Like, like this is just a little glimpse of what eternity looks like in a message to the church that had some pretty serious warnings to it. But they allowed some pretty serious activity to creep into their church. And so in closing, here it is. Compromising our faith will always lead to a place of regret. A place of spiritual wilderness. And sometimes spiritual death. Jesus as the loving shepherd that he is, will always judge what we are doing with a two-edged sword. Because that sword is his word. He will judge us according to what his word says. And so it is up to us to respond accordingly. And when we do, we will get our lives heading back into the direction that Jesus had originally intended for our lives to be going down, for the path he intended for our lives to be on. And as mentioned in the letter in the church of Pergamum, when we gain victory over that which has been compromised, we will be met with promises that give us a hopeful future to hold on to. Spiritual food for nourishment and a stone with an eternal name written on it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this letter that we see that the church in Pergamum was, was dealing with God, even though there's some pretty serious topics that you're addressing and, and things that we need to know about, God, you, you commend them for what they, they were doing well in. 
you give them an area that needs corrected in, and then you show them and us, listen, here's the result of what will happen when you fix what was compromised or when you don't compromise your faith. Here are your eternal results. And so, God, I thank you for that. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that as we're about to head into a time of worship, you know, I just, I just get this sense that there will be some hidden manna falling from heaven into some of our lives. Like some of us feel like we're just dried up spiritually. This, this, is, this, is what, this is what I believe the Lord wants you to know. Some of us in this room feel like we are dried up spiritually. And when you heard that, that, that spiritual nourishment of manna pressed into the presence of God during worship and you will receive that nourishment that you need. I, I kind of see some manna falling from heaven into some lives of those who need it. And I want to encourage you as we move into a time of worship, go all out. Don't let the person standing next to you, in front of you, behind you, don't be concerned of what they think. Go all out. Let's worship Jesus with reckless abandon. Amen? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.